0: As Corinne comes up, uh, you might like to turn to your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 1, part B. Uh, So the second half of uh, verse 1 in Acts chapter 8. The first part of that verse is sort of finishing a different thought. Thanks, Corinne.
1: Please follow along as I read. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned his for, deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks of impuous, with For with shrieks shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city, and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, "'This man is rightly called the great power of God.' They followed him because he had had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, They sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part, to share, no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandak, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, "'Go to that chariot and stay near it.' Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. "'Do you understand what you are reading?' Philip asked." "'How can I?' he said, "'unless someone explains it to me.' So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. "'He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, "'and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, "'so he did not open his mouth. "'In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. "'Who can speak of his descendants? "'For his life was taken from the earth.' The eunuch asked Philip, "'Tell me, please,' Who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea.
0: Thank you, Corin. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all. My name's Jamie, if we haven't met yet, and it'd be great to catch up over coffee later. But for now, um, imagine you get a call one night from a family friend. Martha is someone you see once a year when you visit interstate. She's known you from when you were a kid and she always keeps up on the latest in your life. But tonight, Martha rings out of the blue and there's no small talk. I'm sorry to interrupt your night, but I have a big favor to ask. My son and his family are in trouble. You remember Sam? Well, he's had to leave his house and they need somewhere to stay. Please, can you help them? You look around your slightly chaotic living room and and say, well, I guess I have a couple of couches. Is everything okay? Well, they're actually in a bit of trouble. Uh, They've been getting some threats. Thanks for helping them out though. Well, hang on, what have they done? Well, they've gotten into this new thing called Christianity. So Sam and his family turn up looking pretty disheveled. And after the kids get to bed, you get talking with Sam. What happened to you? And Sam starts to talk about a day in Jerusalem, about a preacher called Peter and all these old Bible stories he grew up with in synagogue, how they came alive when he talked about this man, Jesus, who they say walked out of his tomb three days after being crucified. About this amazing community, about some trouble and a man named Saul, about a horrible day where one of the leaders of this community was lynched by an angry mob, about life on the road, You pause, Sam, at that point. So you're saying that this Jesus isn't here now, but he's gone up to heaven. And you're part of this new underground movement that's spreading the word about him. One of the leaders of that movement's just been killed. Everyone's running for their lives. And the preachers that you talked about, you can't listen to them anymore because they're in Jerusalem where you can never return. You try to keep a respectful tone. So that life of following Jesus has led you to my grotty couch. I don't want to say, where is your God now? But do you ever wonder what Jesus is doing? And Sam pauses for a second and then smiles. Okay, so there's my story inspired by Acts 8 verse 1. It's, it's a fair question, isn't it? What is Jesus doing when everything seems to be going wrong? If you were that couch surfer, what would you need to be convinced of in order to smile at that question no matter what's going on in your life? Because if there's a sensible reason to be able to smile when everything seems to be going wrong, I wanna know it, don't you? Because can any of us honestly say that our life is turning out just how we thought it would? If you're a Christian today, can you look back on better days? Maybe you're like me and you were part of a, a Christian group at uni. And you might have a stack of old Jesus Week jumpers that you used to wear as a conversation starter on campus. Sometimes my old stack makes me a bit sad... Like, man, would I put myself out there like that now? Or maybe you can look back on life before kids or before the mortgage, when life, it just seemed a bit easier to joyfully serve your Savior. Or for others of us, it might feel like that joyful Christian life is a long way off. Maybe like when you finish school. But I dare say here in January 2022 that all of us are at least a bit unsure of where life is going to take us. Like, I think church will be able to meet next Sunday. But what does it look like to be a part of Jesus' great mission in the world when lots of people need to stay away from church? What is Jesus doing now? These are questions that believers have faced from the start. Questioning Christianity isn't a new, in, new idea invented by clever modern Westerners. That's why Luke felt compelled to write a follow-up to his biography of Jesus' life. Luke writes Acts to a guy called Theophilus because he wants him to be sure that the risen Jesus is at work in this world of surprises. In fact, in our passage today, Luke wants all of us to leave convinced that If you throw your lot in with Jesus, you are on a mission that cannot and will not fail. Even when everything seems topsy-turvy. So as we work through this great chapter, we're going to find four answers to that question, what is Jesus doing? Answer one, the risen Jesus is turning opposition on its head. Let's read again from verse one. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. What a dark day that must have been when people treated Jesus' followers just like they treated him. But there's another echo in those words they were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It reminds us of the great promise Jesus made before he ascended to heaven. You might like to flick back a few pages in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 8. Here's what it says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we find ourselves on this dark day where Jesus' promise remains. In fact, he uses the very opposition that tries to squash the gospel to make sure it spreads to Judea and Samaria. So that promise from chapter one is well underway. The Lord who can turn the cruel torture of a cross into the salvation of the world is quite capable of turning the scorn and jealousy of the naysayers into a gospel win. Have a look at verse 4 back in chapter 8. What do Christians do when they're on the run? Well, those who had been scattered preach the word wherever they went. Christians must be a really annoying target to silence, right? You chase them out of town, they go and tell people there. You take away their jobs, they still have a vocation. You rough them up a bit, they commit, uh, they, it just makes their message. About the cross, even more credible. You take away their lives, they give themselves happily to the Lord of the resurrection. I'm not talking about happy clappyism here. Luke records also that godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. The grief was real, but never without hope. The chaotic situation was upsetting but never without purpose, because the risen Jesus is sending his witnesses to Judea and Samaria and beyond. I don't know about you, but that's so refreshing to me. When life is hectic, I tend to retreat into a kind of self-protective mode. I've become a dad of two kids in this pandemic and I'm quite tired um, and a bit anxious to be honest. It can be tempting to think, I'll get back into telling others about Jesus when I'm a bit more in control. Now, it'd be silly to deny the hecticness of this season, but Acts 8 reminds me that Jesus has put me here for a reason. Notice also that it's not the apostles, but ordinary believers who go around preaching in verse 1. And we'll see in the rest of this chapter that gospel preaching can look like a sermon to a crowd or to a one-on-one chat about the Bible. It's not just a privilege for the especially gifted or for those who do it for a job. Jesus gives all his people hand-picked parts to play in his unstoppable mission to reach the world. Like as we spread out from here this afternoon and this week, What opportunities will Jesus give you with your gifts and quirks and the season you're in to spread the good news as you go? Finding confidence in the chaos that Jesus has a knack of turning opposition on its head. For example, one of the reasons that you're hearing this sermon from me today is that my dad went and harassed some street preachers when he was a uni student. Uh, He dragged his Christian roommate, who was trying really hard to evangelize my dad, let's go and have a laugh in Rundle Mall. Uh, Little did my dad know that when one of those preachers quoted a verse from Revelation at him, that Jesus would use that moment to bring everything together for my dad and bring him literally to his knees in repentance. And from my dad, he passed the news about the forgiveness Jesus offers to me through some opposition of my own. And here I am as today, someone who's trying to tell others that same news that changed my life. I'm thankful that Jesus turned opposition into salvation for me. If that's how Jesus works, there's a very freeing consequence for us. When Jesus is opposed... We don't need to be defensive. Because we know that his mission can't fail. So we're free to respond to snide comments with kindness, to misrepresentation with compassion, or to trump card arguments with curiosity. It's a bit like the immortal words of ABBA. I feel like I win when I lose, right? Because Jesus turns opposition on its head. And as a result, point two, he's tearing down racial barriers. Let's keep reading from verse five. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Philip was one of the helpers recruited by the apostles in chapter six to wait on tables so they could get on with preaching the word. But by now it's very clear that all believers can be used by Jesus to spread that word in powerful ways. So Philip flees to Samaria. And it's not just amazing that the word about the Messiah makes it that far geographically. What's more amazing is the way that Jesus crosses lines of prejudice and bitter rivalry in the process. The first Christians, like Jesus himself, were Jewish. They orbited around that holy city, Jerusalem, with all the Old Testament promises that centred on that place. And to put it mildly, your average person of Jewish descent would not be friends with a Samaritan, and vice versa. That's why Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan was so shocking. It challenged a racial rift with centuries of history behind it. Generations earlier, Israel had an ugly split. Samaria became the capital of the northern kingdom and Jerusalem in the south. And while neither kingdom did a good job of being faithful to God, Samaria in the north had a particularly nasty reputation. They were the first to capitulate to the gods of other nations. By the time you get to Jesus' day, Samaritans were a real mix of Jewish and pagan culture They read part of the Hebrew scriptures. They had their own temple to God, even though God said that his temple was in Jerusalem. And here they are in Acts 8, hanging on the words of a sorcerer named Simon, thinking he was the way to God. You can imagine how a Jewish person in Jerusalem might look at a Samaritan as worldly, compromised, a mockery of your efforts to take God seriously. But according to Jesus, there is a place in God's heart for Samaria. So he sends Philip there to announce a Messiah they neither sought nor deserved. Because that's what Jesus is like. He moves towards us even when we're getting it all wrong. So when Philip arrives with the news that Jesus was calling them home to God, Luke records that there was great joy in that city. The same blood-bought forgiveness that those first Jewish Christians enjoyed flowed out a bit further, and the risen Jesus is still smashing down barriers today. Is there anyone you're tempted to think might be too far gone for Jesus? Maybe it's somebody with a bit of Bible knowledge, but that just makes it even harder to talk about. So close yet so far, a bit like the Samaritans. Or let's be honest, maybe the person too far gone for Jesus in your mind is you. Remember today, Jesus isn't just calling all kinds of people from all over the world into God's family. He is specifically calling the furthest, the most stained and most difficult to find the joy of a new life. He tore down the prejudice that might have stopped those early Christians going there because when everything seems to be going wrong, no one is too far gone for Jesus. And now point three, from the outward barriers to the inward, in verse nine we find Jesus tackling demonic power, They were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised. There was something about this magician Simon that grabbed the masses. Maybe it was his knack for self-promotion or perhaps the amazing things he did. In the culture of the day, if you had a problem, there would be someone offering a solution in the form of magic. Of course, for a reasonable fee. We're not talking rabbit out of the hat type stuff, but claiming to have an influence over the unseen spiritual world that was such a source of fear for people, the root of disease and misfortune. God's people Israel had a long history of turning to necromancers and witches for help, even though it was explicitly forbidden in God's law. We might think that our modern science-driven world has moved on from that kind of thing, but the popularity of psychics or just looking to the universe for answers would tell me otherwise. There's something about the human heart that wants to be master of its own destiny. And so there's that fascination with trying to control the forces that are beyond us. You might call it playing God. Simon the Sorcerer's impressive manipulation of the demonic for the supposed good of mankind ironically puts him on the devil's side because he's turning people's faith to him instead of Jesus. And there's something about the preaching of this ordinary believer that shakes people out, this spiral of fear and control. When they pay attention to Philip's message, Jesus wins yet another victory over the devil. And even the devil's servant can't ignore it. Because Jesus is the real answer to those fears. When he walked the earth, he expelled the demonic, not with an impressive show for a fee, but with a word. And he gives Philip the ability to do the same. Jesus is the one who can really set us free from the forces that trouble us, the biggest of which is that human desire to play God. In verse 14, the apostles in Jerusalem hear this amazing news that Jesus has been working in Samaria of all places, and so they come to check it out. And we get to this weird episode where they pray for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit because he hadn't come on them even though they'd been baptized into Jesus' name. It's weird because back in chapter 2, Peter said, Repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The assurance of the gospel is that if you believe in Jesus, his spirit is living in you now. So it's very unusual to repent and believe and not receive the gift of the spirit. God chooses to act differently on this particular occasion... A bit like he did at Pentecost in chapter 2. Because as the gospel reaches a new frontier, he wants the apostles and us to pay attention. See, my spirit is coming to Samaria. And you get a real sense in these chapters that the leaders, the apostles, are really trailing behind what God is doing. Everyone else is out there preaching. They're back in Jerusalem. The Samaritans receive the word like Jesus promised, but they have to turn up after the fact to witness firsthand that the Holy Spirit really has come upon this new people group. I think there's great reassurance there for anyone who, like me, can be a bit slow to learn. Our fumbling efforts won't hold Jesus back. We can and should do our best to to plan how we're going to serve his mission in the world, but Since we can never fathom how generous the grace of God is, we'll always be playing catch up with what he's doing. Hey, with so much up in the air, as we plan to start a new church in Tonsley and a new chapter here at CLG in just a few weeks, how comforting is it to know that Jesus goes ahead of us and we're just playing catch up with whatever happens next? But there's a wrong way to respond to that generosity. Verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon has built his living around being top dog, and sadly it becomes clear here that's exactly who he still wants to be. Looking back at verse 13, It's now clear that Simon was more enthralled by the miracles Philip did and the attention they got than the message of the cross. Jesus may have impressed him, but Simon hasn't yet allowed him to turn his world upside down. He's still seeing this whole thing through the lens of money and power. And Peter's response is quite pointed, because Simon is at risk of staying captive to his old ways and dragging his community with him. But here's the amazing thing, even in that pointed warning when everything's going so kind of off kilter for Simon, it's not too late for him. Verse 22, he can still ask the Lord for help. And Luke leaves us wondering, did Simon bow the knee to Jesus in the end? I think he wants us to turn the mirror on ourselves and think, well, what would I do? What are the, am I impressed? Am I impressed by Jesus but unwilling to let my life revolve around him? Are there lenses that I still look at my life through? I don't know about you, but I can be tempted to squash Jesus into my world. I think in our part of the world, the lenses of comfort or giving my family the ability to have every opportunity they tempt us to see Jesus as a means to an end rather than as the master of every part of me. Luke gives us that pointed warning. Don't miss the wonder of letting Jesus turn your world upside down. If there's something that you reckon you might have been putting ahead of Jesus, why not bring it to him today and ask for some help? Because if there's any mission you want to be on board with, it's his. It cannot fail to bring life and joy wherever it takes you. Because Jesus is turning, tearing, tackling, and point four, taking in the outsider. There's quite a striking change of scene in verse 26. At the Lord's prompting, Philip leaves the city of success where the crowds were hanging on his words for a desert road. In that way, Philip's a lot like his saviour because Jesus wasn't afraid to leave the masses for the place of disrepute. And here in Acts 8, he sends his servant Philip from the crowds to go after just one precious person on a dusty old road. And what a fascinating person this, this guy is. He's from Ethiopia. That's a long way from Jerusalem, He's a eunuch, his body has been mutilated so that he can't have kids, and he's the Queen's CFO. Eunuchs were often given these high-ranking positions because they were unable to be involved in a sex scandal, and he may have even been subject to castration as a child for that very purpose. He's a man with everything and nothing. He's very powerful, but if anyone knows that there's more to life than money and power, it'd have to be a eunuch who is different in a way that makes him ever the outsider. He has no way of having a family of his own, but more than that, he is excluded from coming close to the God he wants to know. He could take his royal chariot all the way to Jerusalem But the Old Testament law forbade eunuchs from coming too far into the temple because they were ritually unclean. He experienced, in a very flesh and blood way, something that's true for all of us. Flawed human beings can't just waltz into God's presence and think it's going to be fine. But he clearly knew enough of his Bible to know that God had made some very big promises for eunuchs and outsiders everywhere. Because Acts records that he was sitting in this chariot, searching through the scroll of Isaiah. You can imagine how this passage about a suffering servant must have resonated for a man whose ability to have descendants was also taken away. And in God's uncanny timing, he organizes things so it's at this moment that he meets a Christian, running alongside his chariot, panting as he tries to keep up. Do you understand what you're reading? And so begins this conversation that led this man to his saviour. Is this passage about Isaiah, or was he talking about someone to come? Let me read out a bit more of the chapter the eunuch was reading. And as I do, you might like to think about how Philip might have answered this question. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as the sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. What was Jesus doing on the cross? Where everything went wrong? Jesus became the outsider, bleeding in a garbage tip for criminals. And Isaiah tells us, centuries before the fact, that he went there for us, pierced for our transgressions. He dealt with the problem that makes everyone an outsider with God. We've all transgressed his ways. We've all tried to be master of our own destinies. And this broken world of racism, mutilation, hatred, anxiety, sickness, and death is the result. And Jesus chose to enter into all of that and bear the punishment that would bring us peace with God forever. So that outsiders might be able to come all the way inside God's house, not as guests, but as family. It's no wonder this eunuch is keen to throw in his lot with Jesus right there and then. What is stopping me from being baptized? Here's some water. And it would be silly of me not to ask at this point is there anything stopping you from throwing your lot in with Jesus right now? There really is no one too far gone. And sure, there are other things that we can occupy ourselves with there's money, there's power, there's family. But without Jesus, you can have everything but nothing. With Him, even with nothing, You've got it all. If that's something you really need to follow up, please don't leave it here today. What's stopping you? Please tell a trusted Christian friend. You can talk to me or Cam or anyone really who is a Christian here. Tell them you'd like to get to know Jesus. This story of Jesus chasing down an outsider also tells us where we need to go to meet Jesus today. We see in the eunuch's experience that those words in the Bible written down so long ago are alive and active so that an ordinary guy like Philip can lead a man with everything but nothing to Jesus just by opening up and talking about these ancient words. So if you want to know Jesus, that's where you should go today. And if you want to be involved in Jesus' unstoppable mission in the world today... Let him do the heavy lifting by taking people to the Bible to meet him. You don't need a shiny argument or even all the answers. All Philip really did was ask a question about a passage of the Bible and point to how it spoke about Jesus. In the mess of life, there is a sensible reason to smile. Because if you follow Jesus, you are wrapped up in a mission that can't fail. There'll be twists and turns for sure, but Jesus will never fail and he'll never leave. So here's the question In 2022, how might things change for me if I saw it as a genius move of the Master that I should be where I am right now? In 2022, how might things change for you if you saw it as a genius move of the Master that you should be? where you are right now, in this season of your life. And I know that for many, this season involves grief, sickness, anxiety, being stuck at home, frantic busyness. If it's true that Jesus is still coming through in his promise to reach the world, then there just has to be something about where he has put us right now that he will use for our good and his honour in the lives of those around us. There has to be. What would it look like if we believed that? We're on the brink of some pretty ambitious plans here at church. It's also a super uncertain time. How comforting to remember our plans may twist and turn, but Jesus' mission can never fail. It might look different to what we imagine, but his grace is bigger than we can imagine. It won't fail. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to enter into our world of opposition, injustice and death. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering for our sake on the cross so that we might have a home with you. Thank you for wrapping us up in a mission that can't fail while you still call more people home. Please give each of us the eyes of faith this week to see the opportunities you've put before us in the season of life you've put us in to speak about you. Amen.